Indeed is made possible through the generous support of Manitou Fund. A special thanks to them for helping us share the hidden world of water with you. Todd, man. Jed. What are we talking about today? We're talking about sewers. Of course. That's what we do. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to return for a sec to London. Oh, London again. London again. London's important. We just did a whole episode on London. Yeah. So there's this guy named Ellis Chesborough. He's from Chicago. And when he gets hired to be the chief engineer for the city of Chicago, and he said, well, if you're going to give me this job, I get to go to Europe to look at the sewers. <laughs> Exciting. <laughs> and Chicago's like, well, we want him to build sewers, so I guess you better go study. Like, was he just like the worst tourist in the world? Like, or was this something that people did? Did people go check out European cities' sewers? It was, it was a work trip. For him, it was a work trip. I mean, he couldn't fly there because it's the 1850s. So he got on a ship, off he went to Europe, and he didn't just go to London, by the way. He went to Manchester, he went to Berlin, he went to Paris. Ooh la la. Yeah, so he's down there, underground, looking at sewers. <laughs> Fun guy. Taking measurements, <laughs> saying, oh, look, it's made of brick. <laughs> so the reason he did this was because Chicago, at the time, still had privy vaults and drainage sluices. What are these things? Well, it's basically a hole in the ground for the privy vault and a drainage sluice. It's a ditch. Yeah, that is quite the euphemism. Privy vault. <laughs> Instead of, this hole in my house. <laughs> right. Through which unspeakable things happen. From American Public Media and The Water Main, this is Indeed. I'm Jed Kim. We're a podcast that shines a light on the neglected world of pipes and sewers that are supposed to keep our water safe, but don't always. Water infrastructure in much of the country is in a bad state of disrepair. It's like a century old in some places. And the federal government's investment in it is plummeting. We'll be talking a lot about those current problems in future episodes. But today, we're diving into some big, early attempts to keep our water clean, often from our waste. For starters, we're talking about how one great American city struggled with this problem for decades before finally, mostly, figuring it out. Todd Melby joins us again and picks up the story of Ellis Chesbro, that guy from Chicago who went to London to see the sewers. Yeah, Chesbro was an engineer. He'd just been appointed Chicago's chief engineer, and he faced a big problem. All the refuse that you can imagine associated with humans and with animals was in the streets. This is Benjamin Sells. He's written a book about this. Chicago was choking to death on its, on its own waste. Gross. There was so much excrement, mud, urine, and trash everywhere, people made jokes about it. A visitor was here and he saw a man with his shoulders and head above, above the ground and said, sir, do you need assistance? And the guy said, no, I'm fine. I've got a good horse under me. <laughs> I mean, obviously that's kind of an exaggeration, but we're talking about actually just like wading through filth just as you're walking down the street? Yes, because they had no place to put it. That's nuts. One of the things Chicago had to figure out to be successful that any major, major city has to figure out to be successful is they've got to get infrastructure right. So this is kind of like a turning point then. Correct. It knows it needs to figure this out to be mm. a contender. Maybe having that in place allowed it to become what it is. 
Exactly. Right, right. Without figuring out how to keep the drinking water and the sewage separate, it's, it's just a backwater. So the question was, well, how do we build a sewage system that will drain the city? When the city is so flat, we can't put the sewage system underground. Chesbro's answer, we'll raise the city. We'll make the city higher, and then we'll put the sewage system underneath it. Hey, what does that even mean? <laughs> well, it means that Chicago is flat, and it's built on a swamp, so there's there's no way to build a sewer system into the swamp. So what they had to do, they had to excavate part of the river and make artificial hills and physically jack up all the buildings to make them slope so all the muck would go down into the river. Wow. So that's the first thing Chicago did, was to just make all the stuff flow downhill. But the problem with this was is that once it went into the river, the Chicago River flows into Lake Michigan, and the city was getting its drinking water from Lake Michigan. This is kind of like the same thing that uh, London was dealing with, with the Thames, right? Exactly, right, right. So, you know, where you stick your pipe in to get the water, it's got to be clean. And Chicago thought, well, the first thing we'll do, we'll just put it in the river and the lake will be fine. (laughs) (laughs) But because the city kept growing, the lake was not fine. So the second thing Chesborough figured he'd do was to build a two-mile tunnel under Lake Michigan. To get, what, past, like, where the the, the waste goes into Lake Michigan? Exactly. So if you build an underground pipe two miles under Lake Michigan, and then, of course, have the pipe come up and suck out the clean water two miles away, that's going to be super clean out there. I mean, that makes sense to me. Yeah. This was a really big deal at the time. Benjamin Sells called it the engineering marvel that saved Chicago. Before the two-mile tunnel was built and the, the pipe was closer to shore, that sometimes people would get minnows coming, <laughs> coming out of their pipe. Oh, God. <laughs> the two-mile tunnel's built. Chicago's happy, but its population keeps growing. It's pretty much doubling its population every, every decade or so. So in 1870, there were about 300,000 people in the city. By 1880, more than half a million. Huh. And then another 10 years later, 1890... More than a million people lived in Chicago. Wow. Doubled in 10 years. All these people uh, led to more and more pollution. Those big fixes weren't enough. Right. So they did one more big fix. Uh, what do you mean? So Chesborough, before he died, he came up with a, a yet another genius plan. The new genius plan was to reverse mm-hmm. the flow of a river. When Chesbro came, the Illinois and Michigan Canal had been completed. And so Chesbro immediately said, if we were to do a deeper cut on the Illinois and Michigan Canal, and again, because of the flatness of the area, we could reverse the flow of the Chicago River and send all of Chicago's waste down the Chicago River to the Illinois, to the Mississippi, down south. The St. Louis and New Orleans must have loved this. (laughs) They hated it. Totally (laughs) hated it. And Chicago said, well, the solution to pollution is dilution. (laughs) And they were like, yeah, up yours, Chicago. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly what they were like. Uh, they, They were about ready to file a lawsuit to stop Chicago from building its big ditch. But they waited too long. Chicago finished quicker than they said they were going to finish. And they opened it and the water just started flowing St. Louis's way. And, and once it was done, it, no going back? At that time, there was no wastewater treatment. Nobody knew how to clean the water. But for Chicago at the time, they got to keep their clean water, but people downstream didn't.
And that's where America and the world was at the dawn of the 20th century. The best any city could do was shove its problem downstream, or out to sea. What needed to happen in the years after Chicago sent its waste to St. Louis and New Orleans was a real solution. A solution to one of the epic struggles of humankind. What do we do with all our excrement? Because, as we know now, just dumping it into convenient rivers is really problematic. You can't just magic waste away, but you can science it away. And the ability to do this was a big step forward in allowing modern cities to thrive. To better understand how it works, I turn to Dan Ackerman. Dan is a Boston-based science reporter who we're fortunate to have on our team. He's got a PhD in ecology and... Much like the processes involved in wastewater treatment, he's really good at breaking down complex stuff. I called him up. Join a meeting? Meetings? I am here. How's it going, Jed? So, Dan, I want you to explain how wastewater treatment works. I've been to a plant before, uh, one in Chicago. Okay. Basically a poop plant. Uh, we, we saw all kinds of stuff there. We saw the grates that filtered out big stuff that wasn't poop, stuff like the condoms, syringes, tampons, stuff people shouldn't flush. After that, we saw big tanks full of sewage that sit for a while and uh, to let the solid material settle out. Uh-huh. And then uh, the, the manager told us how that remaining wastewater, uh, full of dissolved grossness, gets mixed in with something called activated sludge. Yeah. It, it didn't smell bad. After that, things got a little confusing because, you know, science. The sludge actually doesn't smell too bad, which was uh, kind of a surprise for me to learn. <laughs> um, I guess when you mix air into it, that makes it smell uh, palatable. But let me back up and tell you about how Activated Sludge got its start, because I think it's a super cool story. Well, hit me up with it. So the story kind of starts actually in the mid-1800s. There were cities in the U.S. and in Europe and elsewhere that were just growing exponentially. Like people were moving into cities, population exploding, and so the sewage production was also exploding. <laughs> right, yeah. And what to do with all this sewage? Uh, one thing they did was dump it into the rivers. Gross. But of course that kills everything in the rivers. Terrible. Yep, and that also kills uh, people who might be coming into contact with cholera-ridden water. Right. Along comes this guy named Gilbert Fowler who tried to turn things around. He was born in 1868 in Paris, and he went to school to study chemistry in England. I could only find one photo of Gilbert Fowler. He's dressed in like a suit and a tie. He's got a handkerchief in the pocket, <laughs> clean shaven, uh, except he's got this full, vigorous Teddy Roosevelt mustache. Ooh, nice. Yeah, and kind of his inspiration for Activated Sludge came when he visited the land of Roosevelt in uh, 1912. He set sail for Lawrence, Massachusetts, and that's where he said was the mecca of sewage purification. Wait, so this already existed to some degree? Not quite, but there was this experimental station in Massachusetts that was looking into different ways of potentially treating sewage. So Gilbert Fowler pays a visit to see what they were working on. What did he see when he got there? Well, I hope he saw that New England clam chowder is way better than Old England gruel, but on the <laughs> sewage front, 
Um, as, as a New Englander, I just had to get that in there. Yeah. <laughs> Got to give props to your chowder. On the sewage front, he saw two things that the researchers in Massachusetts were working on that seemed to be doing okay in cleaning sewage. The first was air. So, like, if you mixed sewage or, like, bubbled air into it, uh-huh. that somehow seemed to make it cleaner over time. Uh, okay. And the second thing he observed is that there had to be some form of life in the sewage, like itty-bitty life, like bacteria and microbes. They somehow seemed to be eating sewage. And so Gilbert Fowler saw this, went back to Manchester, England, and told his co-workers at the public utility, all right, let's play around with these two ingredients, these air and microbes, and see if we can solve the sewage problem. All right. They followed Fowler's orders. They played around. And after two years, they kind of figured it out. Two years, that's it? Two years in the lab. And they found out that, like, collecting the microbes in each batch of wastewater and then recycling them for the next batch was kind of the key to this whole thing. And this is stuff that was already there. They didn't add it. Right. So these microbes actually came from whoever was flushing the toilet. Um, Just (laughs) whatever goes down the drain, whatever's in the sewers, that contains bacteria. And in the sewage treatment plant, these bacteria eat the sewage, make it a little cleaner, and then you can send out that water back into the rivers kind of safely. But what these folks in Manchester found out is that when you send the water out, you got to hold on to those microbes and keep them around for the next batch, and then the next one, and then the next one. And as you recycle these microbes, that little goo of bacteria would grow so concentrated and so efficient at sewage busting, the folks at Manchester said it was activated. Ah, that's the term. So I talked with Ali Ling about all this. She's a wastewater engineer for Bar Engineering in Minneapolis. And she really emphasized that activated sludge is such a unique system because it's not like there's synthetic chemicals or machinery doing all this. It's just natural living things. I think it's one of the few areas in modern civilization where we use biology on such a large scale in so many cities across across the country. Really? Like sewage is the place where we go big with our biology. Yeah, pretty much. She also explained why air is so important in activated sludge. How so? To start with, bacteria are absolutely wild, Jed. Ooh, do tell. Some of them can breathe iron, but it turns out that the poop-eating microbes in activated sludge are merely humble oxygen breathers, just like you and me. It does explain Gilbert Fowler's two ingredients. The microbes do the work, that's the biology, And the air gives them oxygen to breathe easy. Okay. To this day, the the key component of wastewater plants are just these big tubs of activated sludge. Oh, it's like magic. Wastewater, Wastewater treatment is like magic. Wow. Before we had wastewater treatment and drinking water treatment, there was a lot more fecal oral disease. So if you are eating or drinking something that has touched somebody else's poop and they're sick, you are likely to get sick too. So if you have one sick person, that person could infect a lot of people really fast. So she is a self-described microbe nerd. She, she actually even told our producer Todd Milby that activated sludge should be revered as a superhero. <laughs> it's a hero 
because it takes all of the unsavory things that come in with the wastewater and it turns it into clean water. Wow. I'm sure someone's done this or thought of this. Uh -huh. It was like, you know, get AS on a... <laughs> a superhero costume? Exactly. That would be great. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Todd. So there you have it. It's a bird. It's a plane. It's a slurry of bacteria eating dissolved fecal matter. <laughs> Remember Gilbert Fowler, who kind of helped invent this whole process? Well, yeah. <laughs> Can't forget him. Here's the twist about Gilbert Fowler. He was actually both a hero and a villain in this story. Oh, love it. Yes. Why? <laughs> he was working for the Manchester Rivers Department, right? So that's like a public utility serving the public good. So at the same time, Fowler struck an under-the-table deal with a private for-profit company. And I'm going to let historian Daniel Schneider tell you about that. Okay. And he was kind of secretly feeding information from the Manchester researches to this company and was hiding his involvement. So he was kind of double dealing here. He was definitely double dealing. So this private company, which is creatively called Activated Sludge Incorporated, uh -huh. they filed a patent on the Activated Sludge process. And the city of Manchester was pissed. They were not happy with Gilbert Fowler, who made a cool thousand pounds selling and privatizing Manchester's wastewater research. And if you're keeping score at home, Jed, a thousand pounds sterling in 1914, about 150,000 US dollars today. Ah. He kind of sold this information. And then what happened was Activated Sludge Limited looked around, saw how many cities were adopting this activated sludge process, and said, We'll see you in court. No, they sued? Yes, uh, yeah. here's, here's Dan Schneider again. They sued Milwaukee. Uh, they sued Chicago. They sued over 600 cities in the United States. But Milwaukee, Chicago, and all of these other cities had to pay several million dollars to Activated Sludge Incorporated. Wow, so these cities got screwed because of this guy. Yeah, but the thing is, Activated Sludge was so good that some cities were willing to cough up millions in taxpayer funds keep using this patented process. All right, Mr. Fowler, somewhat okay, somewhat crappy individual. Way to go. All right, there's, there's gray area in all of us, Jed. <laughs> we'll be back after this short break. Wastewater wasn't just fascinating a century ago. These days, it continues to intrigue scientists. And for reasons you may not expect. We know already that people don't even have bowel movements at the same rate. Meet Glenn Simmons Jr. If you have a population at a particular site that is all raw food vegans, you know, the way that they're going to the bathroom may be very different. Simmons is a medical researcher at the University of Minnesota Duluth. He spent most of his career studying HIV and cancer. But these days, thanks to the COVID pandemic, he's really into poop. I mean, it sounds a little uh, graphic to some folks, but that's that's how we have to think now in, uh, in, in some ways. And it's actually been very helpful. Way back in early 2020, when COVID-19 was starting to make headlines, Simmons says he saw the pandemic coming and he was terrified about how it might play out in the U.S., well, the very first thing that, that kicked uh, my brain into overdrive was the obvious issue with health disparities in America. Simmons' fears were justified. Black and Latinx people are more likely to get COVID-19 than whites and more likely to die from it. 
Latinx people are also twice as likely to be uninsured. That makes it harder to seek healthcare in the first place. Black patients who visited a hospital with COVID symptoms in the early months of the pandemic were less likely than white patients to get tested or treated for the disease. As he pondered these disparities, Simmons remembered something about a different outbreak of a different coronavirus, SARS, back in the early 2000s. That outbreak actually showed that there were particular manifestations of, of the virus in terms of gastrointestinal issues. So basically people having um, diarrhea. Turns out the same is true of COVID-19. The virus can infect the intestines and wind up in people's excrement. And while people might not have equal access to health care, their waste all goes through the same sewers and to the same wastewater treatment plant. So that is where Simmons is testing for COVID-19. If you're able to test a wide swath of the population without worrying about individuals making a decision, you eliminate a significant amount of that bias. Nearly two dozen wastewater treatment plants are sending Simmons samples. He and other scientists are examining those samples for traces of COVID. Now, what Simmons is doing is called wastewater epidemiology. He's part of a global network of researchers trying to learn about the pandemic from our collective excrement. Simmons says they're not quite at the point where they can tell exactly how many people have COVID by you know, putting a city's wastewater under a microscope. But they're trying to get there. Figuring out precise numbers depends on a lot of variables like how frequently the average person uses the toilet. Thus, the question of vegans versus carnivores. Glenn can get pretty technical about this. So if we always are assuming that everyone, uh, you know, releases at least 200 grams of fecal material uh, every time, every day. That's the weight of two bananas. We're probably going to have some serious underestimations there or even overestimations because the contribution is always going to be different. Simmons's work is kind of revolutionary. I mean, it can help circumvent bias in the healthcare system. And it reminds us that our waste is a reflection of who we are as a society. Other scientists are scouring sewage to uncover geographic patterns of opioid use and antibiotic resistance. This work is like biological archaeology, but in real time. And it led us to suggest to Simmons that maybe poop is truth. <laughs> You, you were waiting on that one. I, I, would, I would say yes. I, I would say yes. There, there's a lot to, a lot of veracity in that. Thanks to all the people who helped make this episode of In Deep happen. Glenn Simmons Jr. is a professor at the University of Minnesota Duluth. Benjamin Sells is author of The Tunnel Under the Lake, the engineering marvel that saved Chicago. Daniel Schneider is a professor at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. His book is titled Hybrid Nature, Sewage Treatment and the Contradictions of the Industrial Ecosystem. For still more on wastewater treatment, we recommend Ali Ling's YouTube video, The Secret Urban Water Cycle. Our production team for this episode includes Todd Melby, Dan Ackerman, Chris Julin, Annie Baxter, and me, Jed Kim. Breakmaster Cylinder composed our theme music. In Deep is a production of The Water Main at American Public Media. <laughs>